invite you to join me, 1 Peter chapter 4, if you're not there already. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice this morning with the Newmans. Rejoice with the way that you have uniquely equipped them for the ministry that you have called them to. Rejoice for the many blessings that you have given them. We rejoice for the evidence of your hand on their ministry even in the last three years as they have set out on this. What an encouragement it is to us, even as their sending church, to see your work through them. And Heavenly Father, I pray that that would embolden us and encourage us to be faithful to the things that you've called us to, even right here in Altoona. Lord, even this morning as we turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 4, I pray that you would work through your word in us, that you would accomplish your purpose here this morning that you would give me boldness and authority to preach the word of God with clarity, that your name would be lifted high. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I have a confession to start with this morning. I am a recovered nyctophobiac. I promise you it sounds worse than it is. All it means is that when I was a child, I was afraid of the dark. There's something eerie about the dark. It's unknown. In fact, it's not so much a fear of darkness itself, but but more of what might be in the darkness that I cannot see. When I was a child, I was afraid, I was extremely afraid of the dark. In fact, I remember one night in particular. I was probably no older than five or six, and my dad was late at at work that night. It was getting late into the evening. My mom went through our nightly bedtime routine and put us, tucked us into bed herself. And she left us to fall asleep while she went on to do the rest of the things that she had to do. I don't know what it was, but that particular night, I was uniquely afraid of the dark. I... I was laying there in bed and, and I felt so exposed, laying in bed in the dark. So I had a bright idea. I grabbed my pillow. I got down on the floor. I crawled under my bed. All the way back against the wall, I used my toy bins to then barricade myself from the darkness of my room under my bed. And feeling safe, I drifted into a deep sleep. And I say deep sleep because I I am a very deep sleeper. In fact, that's part of the problem in this story. You see, as you can imagine, my mom came to check on me and I was not in my bed. At first, she assumed I'd run to the bathroom. She goes to check the bathroom and I'm not in the bathroom. Maybe I'm in my sister's room. So she goes to check my sister's room and I'm not there. Maybe I snuck out to the kitchen, she missed me, so she goes to check the kitchen, and I'm not there. I'm not in her bed. Maybe I had snuck to their room. She can't find me anywhere. 
She starts to panic, and she's looking in closets, and, and she told me, I called her this week to make sure I had all the details of the story right. She said she even got down on hands and knees and looked under my bed, but she couldn't find me. At this point, she's going around the house, and she's yelling out my name, and I'm not responding because I am fast asleep. She is so scared that she calls my grandpa. She can't get a hold of my dad, so she calls my grandpa. He comes over, rushes over. Together, they they search the house, they search the yard, and they cannot find me. At this point, they're starting to assume that maybe someone has broken in and taken me. They get to the point where where you've probably all got to this point when you start, you're you're looking for something and you can't find it and and you just start getting frustrated and you start being gentle with stuff, right? You start throwing stuff out of closets. It's in here somewhere. My grandpa got, he's throwing things out of my closet. You know, maybe I'm gonna, he can't find me. He looks under the bed, my mom said. He couldn't find me. He's everywhere. Finally, he goes back and, and he gets to that point. He just starts pulling stuff out from under the bed and he crawled under the bed and it wasn't until he actually crawled under the bed that he saw me curled up against the back corner of the wall. As terrified of the dark as I was as a child, I'm happy to report that I have grown out of an unhealthy fear of the darkness. Krista has never found me curled up under the (laughs) bed. In fact, most children outgrow their fear of the dark. The Cleveland Clinic states this, Nyctophobia is very common, especially among children. Some researchers estimate that nearly 45% of children have an unusually strong fear of some kind. Fear of the dark is one of the most common fears among, among kids between 6 to 12 years old. Kids usually outgrow nyctophobia by adolescence. See, there are many things that we grow out of as we grow up. Maybe there was a fear or a habit that as you grew up, you grew out of. This morning, as we turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, Peter addresses habits that we who are in Jesus Christ should have grown out of. This passage is a call to victorious living in light of Jesus' substitutionary death and triumphant resurrection for me. So this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we will see the mindset that you must have in Christ. And then the actions that you must be known for in Christ. And finally, the context that you must remember in Christ. First thing we see is your mindset. The mindset that you must have in Christ. Peter starts out, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter begins by pointing us back to Jesus. You see, the therefore, 1 Peter 4.1, draws our minds and our attention back to Jesus' substitutionary suffering and death in my place that we just saw in 1 Peter 3.18. The reality that Jesus suffered and died for my sin. He paid my debt. 
The one who never sinned died on account of sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous. And Peter's point is this, brothers and sisters, if you face backlash for your faith, look to the one who suffered for your sin. Who literally took your lashes on his back. Who suffered unjustly when you justly deserved to suffer. So when you suffer, know that you are not alone in your suffering. You're not unique. Rather, Peter here calls us that when you suffer, look to the cross. See Jesus' suffering for your sin. Follow his example. Be faithful as he was faithful. But I think it's important for us to note that there's a lot more to that therefore than simply suffering. That therefore also includes the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victorious proclamation that we see in 1 Peter 3, 19-20. Peter is not denying the reality of suffering. You might suffer. In fact, you likely will suffer if you are not suffering right now, he is writing to these believers. But the good news is this, is that you will be suffering in light of Jesus' ultimate victory. You will be suffering in light of the resurrection. And it is that victory that gives us hope and purpose. We can suffer well because we know that we will triumph with him who has triumphed. I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is ultimately the point that Peter will go on to make in this passage. This is the big idea. But I think it is important for us to note, even here at the beginning, suffering is likely, but understand the reality of suffering. And also understand the reason for suffering and rejoice in the purpose of suffering and see the context of suffering in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his triumphant proclamations of victory. Be like Jesus. And yet note here in the immediate context Peter is not necessarily calling us to imitate Jesus' suffering. See that. But he's calling us to imitate Jesus' mindset. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, know that, recognize that, see that. But he doesn't say, therefore, go suffer. He says, therefore, arm yourselves also with the same mind. That's an important distinction that we are not called to necessarily imitate Jesus' suffering, but to imitate Jesus' mindset. As a Christian, you are not a masochist who seeks out suffering so that you can be like Jesus. Rather, we are called to seek peace. We are called to live quiet lives, if at all possible, as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-2, to 2, Romans 12, verses 12, 14, and 18. Brothers and sisters, understand this, that suffering is not the goal of the Christian life. 
But suffering is often a byproduct of a Christian testimony in a fallen world. It is not your goal, but it is likely a reality. Like a foreigner who has settled in a strange land, whose dress and food and traditions and language stand out. That's often going to cause some pushback and may even go as far as persecution. So is the Christian living in this fallen world. We are pilgrims. We are outcasts. That's the, the point that Peter's making in, all, in his whole book here. He's writing to these believers and he starts out, even in the first two verses, you pilgrims, you outcasts. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. You're looking forward to another kingdom that is to come. What is this mindset that Peter calls us to? Arm yourselves also with the same mind. Well, the mindset that Peter calls us to imitate in Jesus is a mindset of humble obedience. It's a mindset that submits to the will of God regardless of the consequences. It's a mindset that even in the midst of suffering... believes that God is good and he is working all things together for my good and for his glory as he promises me in Romans 8.28. It's a mindset that we see modeled in Jesus, not just on the cross, but we even get a glimpse into his heart in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 14.36. As Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It is a mindset of humble obedience. It is a mindset that submits to God. A mindset that confesses in all circumstances that God is good. It submits to his sovereign rule recognizing that, bowing to that. In fact, Peter goes on to define this mindset in the rest of this passage, and that's exactly what we see. It is this very mindset that allows us to deny ourselves, to resist the devil, and to live victorious over sin. This mindset of humble obedience, submitting to the Lord in obedience. Arm yourselves with this same mind. Why? For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter here is not promising sinlessness. Rather, this is a general truth. Peter's point is not, if you have this mind... If you suffer in the flesh, you will cease from, you will never sin again. Rather, Peter's point is simply that there is a strengthening power in suffering. The reality that Peter is pointing to here is that the things that I am willing to suffer for are the things that I am convinced of. If I am willing to suffer, in order to obey, 
that very act of suffering shows that I have had victory over that sin. Illustration to help us understand this. Think of someone who's very disciplined with their body. They are mindful of the things that they eat. They have a strict workout schedule that they keep every day. That person who woke up at 5 a.m. this morning to work out, who has counted every calorie, calorie that they have eaten, every step that they have taken, they will not be tempted by a chocolate cupcake at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's not worth it. They have shown in their commitment to health and their willingness to suffer through the body aches and to miss out on foods that others enjoy. They have shown that they have conquered that temptation. That they are not ruled by that. The long-lasting benefits of a healthy lifestyle are infinitely greater to them than the fleeting pleasure of a chocolate cupcake. Now that doesn't mean that that person will never eat a chocolate cupcake again, but it does indicate their commitment to a healthy lifestyle. It testifies to their values, and it does, and it does mean that they are a lot less likely than me to eat that chocolate cupcake. Or maybe think of it on a more serious level. Think of a teen in the Middle East who, because of her faith in Jesus Christ, her public testimony of baptism, has been disowned by her family and kicked out by her community. Yet she's remained faithful. The temptation to be shamed into silence on a college campus over the fear of man is not nearly as strong for her as it is for some of her classmates who have never faced any pushback for her faith. She has already suffered for that. Much more than the mocks of a few classmates. My willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake, resisting the temptation to give in to sin, testifies to this very mindset in me and strengthens me against temptation in the future. What is it that this mindset and the resulting faithfulness testify to? It testifies to the fact that I am no longer living for the flesh. I am living for the will of God. I have been made new. A change has happened. I am not ruled by my lust. I am ruled by a desire to honor God in all, to give him the glory. Brothers and sisters, arm yourselves with this mindset. In fact, note here the responsibility that Peter puts on you. You arm yourself. Think right. Think right about God. Think right about sin. Think right about all of life and its purpose and its meaning. Think right about marriage. Think right about parenting. Think right about politics. Think right about school. Think right about suffering. Arm yourself to live victoriously by arming yourself with the word of God. Power to change. To think rightly and to be faithful. It's not in your willpower. It's in the word of God. It's in the spirit who indwells you.
So do the work to arm yourself with this mindset. Know God's word. Arm yourself with this mindset. And as you work to arm yourself with this mindset, what you'll find is that when you think right, your actions will soon follow. And you will act right. In fact, that's the very point that Peter moves on to here. Your actions. Think rightly. Arm yourselves with the same mind. Verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetimes in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them. In the same flood of dissipation, they speak evil of you. Why? Because a change has happened. This is who you were, but you've grown out of that. That, that word Gentiles here is used as a synonym for the world, those who are outside of the people of God. These are those who spend their lives desperately seeking for meaning, worshiping idols, maybe not physical idols, but idols of their hearts. Their lives revolve around sex and drunkenness and the pursuit of pleasure, and it is empty. It is meaningless. And brothers and sisters, that has no place in the life of the believer. Enough, Peter says. That time is past. That has no place in your life. A change has happened. I had a friend in college who had an odd habit. Whenever he would get stressed, or even just in a moment when he's kind of zoned out, he's not really paying attention, he would start sucking his thumb. Mind you, this was in college. It's kind of weird, right? It's out of place. It doesn't belong. You were supposed to grow out of sucking your thumb. You're supposed to grow out of the fear of the dark. You're supposed to grow out of a need for a pacifier. These are all things that you're supposed to grow out of. They don't belong in the life of an adult. They belong in the past. And that's the idea that Peter's getting at here. He is not at all excusing or downplaying the seriousness of these sinful lifestyles. He's simply saying that these worldly mindset, this worldly mindset, these pursuits, they have no place in your life in Christ. You have grown out of that. A change has happened. That is not who you are anymore now that you are in Christ. And that should show in your life. In fact, to those to whom Peter is writing here, it has shown. That's the very reason that these believers are facing persecution. Verse 4, in regard to these these old things, this lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. They think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation. They speak evil of you because you're no longer like that. The change that has taken place in these believers through the power of the gospel is evident. Evident. 
You stand out and therefore they hate you. They don't understand you. They don't understand what has changed, what's such a big deal. And the idea here is not just that they don't understand it, but they are offended by your refusal to partake in their lifestyle. They are offended that you no longer think like they think, or worship the idols that they worship, or pursue what they pursue. In fact, Peter's already touched on this earlier. Verse Peter 3.15, when he encouraged these believers to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for a reason of your hope, is there not an assumption in there that you will stand out and they will have a reason to ask you for your reason? There is assumption here. There's an assumption across Scripture that you who are in Christ will stand out in a fallen world. the gospel is at work in you because you have been brought from death to life because you have been made new the believers to whom Peter is writing are standing out from their surrounding and they are facing the consequences the world around them has shifted from curiosity towards these Christians to outright animosity in the midst of such hate, Peter is pleading with them, stand fast. You should stand out. That is good. You are following in Jesus' example. You are showing his mindset. Stand fast. But I think it's good that we pause here for a second this morning. And let me ask you a question. Is the power of the gospel at work in you evident like it was for these believers maybe you're ready to give a defense of the gospel maybe you know the gospel forwards and backwards but it's not just being ready is the gospel evident in your lives so that they will ask you so you can take advantage of that what you're ready to share I suspect that the evidence of these lifestyles is not out front and center in any of your lives. There's no one here who participates in orgies or visits unsavory establishments, but I would ask you, what about your search history? What about the content of your conversations and your jokes? Does it testify to the power of the gospel at work in you? Your coworkers, do they even know that you are a Christian? Would, ev- would there ever be any reason for them to ask you about your hope? Or do you blend in? What about your neighbors, your family? Brothers and sisters, these things have no place in your life. Flee from the world and run to Jesus. Learn to think like him. In Christ, you should stand out from the world that is in sin.
And if not this morning, you need to do some serious soul searching. Think rightly, which will lead then to acting rightly. But finally, in verses 5 and 6, Peter here calls these believers to recognize their context. They will give an account, these believers, the the world around you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. What I mean by context here is the circumstances in which you are living the true purpose of life and the real consequences in eternity. Peter is writing to these believers and he is saying the context that you need to keep in mind is not the political climate of the day. It's not the fact that you're living in Nero's empire. It's the fact that you're living in God's universe. You need to remember that Jesus is coming back and that one day everyone will stand before God as judge. That is the real context in which we are living. On the brink of eternity. Here in 1 Peter 4.5, Peter reminds his suffering, frustrated readers that their adversaries will one day be judged. They might judge you, weird, unworthy. They might even persecute you. But know this, that one day justice will be done. They will stand before God as judge. And brothers and sisters, it's important to understand here that we do not long for or revel in the condemnation of our enemies, but we do long for justice, and that is good. We long for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And these same people who see the power of the gospel in you and who because of that respond by mocking and persecuting you, they will one day see the truth. And they will one day stand before the judge and they will one day give an account before God. When we can live understanding the eternal context of this life, that truth will motivate you. Not only to endure persecution, but also to preach the gospel with passion and with urgency. They may shout us down they may try to shut us up, and even as, as, as has been done throughout history, they may burn our buildings and they may even take our lives, but because we know the truth, we must not back down. Because we see the context that they cannot understand, therefore we preach the gospel. My grandfather, I've used this here before, but he's famous around campus for always, when he'd preach, many times he'd get up and he'd say, the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. 
In fact, he'd have the students repeat it back to him. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. This is not theoretical. This is real. People right here in central Iowa are dying and entering eternity today. Are you living in that context? Not just the hope that it gives us of justice, but the passion and urgency that that should fill us with when it comes to evangelism. Judgment is coming. And that fact should both comfort suffering Christians and motivate evangelism. Yet, Peter goes on in verse 6. Not only is judgment coming, but salvation is coming. 1 Peter 4.6 is a somewhat odd verse. At first, it strikes us weird. And yet, when rightly understood, it's actually incredibly comforting. Peter's point... That God is the judge of the living and the dead as he ends, verse 5, means that death is neither an escape from God's judgment nor a hindrance to God's blessing. He is Lord of both the living and the dead. Therefore, for this reason, understanding the reality of God's looming judgment for sin, those who believe the gospel in life, who have since died, will, like Jesus, be raised again to life everlasting. And those who refuse the gospel in life will be judged. The way this is written, it might sound like someone's going and preaching to those who are dead. That's not the point. What Peter is saying is those who heard the gospel in life and died, their hope didn't die with them. If they believed in life, they will, be, they, they will see that hope come to fruition in eternity, even in death. Death is not the end. You see, the world judges Christians as foolish because they don't understand us. They mock us, and then, and then maybe they feel vindicated when we die just like everyone else. He spent his life for Jesus, and he died like everyone else. But what they don't understand is that death is not the end. See, whereas 1 Peter 4.5 is a promise of judgment to the world, 1 Peter 4.6 is a promise of resurrection and vindication for all who are in Christ. Here, Peter, like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, he's comforting his readers with the promise of resurrection. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do who have no hope. Why? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's the same point that, that Peter is making here. God will fulfill his promises. This passage, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6, is a call to victorious living in the light of Jesus' triumphant resurrection. Neither sin nor death have power over the Christian. Neither, neither sin nor death can keep you from God's promises. Brothers and sisters, your hope is different. Your hope is living, therefore your life must look different. The life that you live should testify to the hope 
that you have. So, understanding the real context in which we are living, be faithful. Think right. And then thinking right, live right. As the gospel works in you and you grow in holiness. And then finally see the big picture. Be encouraged by the promise of resurrection and be motivated by the reality of looming judgment. Stand fast and preach loud. A couple closing thoughts on these three points. Think right, act right, understand your context. Number one, think right. Practical applications. How do I think right? Read your Bible. Know the word of God. Be faithful in church sitting under the preaching of God's word, interacting with the saints who can confront you and encourage you as they live alongside you. Around those same lines, surround yourself with godly Christians who will challenge you and help to shape your thinking. Guard what enters your mind, the music that you listen to and the movies that you watch and the books that you read. Let your thinking be shaped by God's word, not by the world. Think right. Secondly, act right. Maybe the most practical application for you this morning is to call you to repent. To confess your sin. Maybe you are living like the world. Maybe you have not abandoned or grown out of those things that you should have. Maybe this morning the Spirit is at work pricking your conscience over unconfessed sin. Won't you this morning confess? Take serious who you are in Christ. See the high cost of sin. See the power of the gospel. Won't you repent? Won't you grow? Won't you start to think right about sin and confess it even here this morning as we close? Finally, understand your context. Be encouraged this morning. If you are tired, overwhelmed, if you are confused, find comfort in the larger context of this life. Understand that God is in control and that in the end you will be vindicated and justice will be done. Maybe this morning, rather than finding the true context of life, rather than thinking about eternity, rather than finding that comforting, maybe this morning you find that terrifying. See, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you don't fully understand the things we're talking about. Maybe the Christian life seems odd to you. But maybe the Lord's at work in your heart. I would love nothing more, even in a second, as we close this service, As we sing a song, I'd invite you to come to the front and find me. I'll be standing right down here. And I'd love nothing more than to take you aside, open the Bible, answer your questions, and point you to Jesus Christ.